Hello and welcome to another episode of the Book Baby Spotlight podcast, your home for conversations with authors, illustrators, editors, and other industry insiders from the world of self-publishing. I'm Sam Sedan, the distribution manager at Book Baby, joined by my co-host, Jasmine Gale. Hey, hey. Today we have an interview with Book Baby author, Dr. Candice Rouser, to discuss her book, Engaged Citizen. But up first, we want to talk about the Newberry Medal, as it is their 100th anniversary. I remember having a few of these books with a big embossed seal growing up, like Giver, Bridge to Terabithia. It's a nice little stroll down memory lane reading this list, huh, Jazz? What's your favorite on there? Um, I think I feel like it actually got a Newberry honor, but Charlotte's Web is definitely something that's up there. So, Jazz, what in simplest terms, what is the Newberry Medal? Yeah, so the Newberry Medal is like a literary literary award given to an author that has the most distinguished contributions to American literature for children. Um, The medal is designated to like one book every year. Other books can receive like an honorary award. Um, The concept was created by famous American publisher Frederick G. Melker. The design itself was made by an American architectural sculptor named Rene Paul Chamberlain in 1922 and has remained the symbol ever since. Okay. How does who gets to decide? Who gets the award? Yeah, so it's the Association Library Service for Children is the committee that makes the decision. The medal is awarded to a book that has publication date copyright of the previous year. And the judging criteria is basically um, a summation of the skillfulness and excellence to either an interpretation of a theme or concept development of plot, setting, presentation of organization, clarity, style, and its characters in like the genre of children's literature. And it's been around for a hundred years now. So I would imagine it's faced some criticism over that time. Uh, You came across a couple of stories, huh? Yeah, definitely. So like one of those critiques is that sometimes people feel like the committee might lean too conservative. Like they might avoid picking a book because it's too popular and modern. One of those books was uh, Captain Underpants. Um, some people felt like that <laughs> deserved more like a uh, credit to the contributions of children's literature. But um, there is often a debate between literary books and popularized books and which ones are more legitimate. Another controversial critique was like I mentioned earlier, Charlotte's Web didn't win the Newbery Medal Award because of its theme of death. And at that time, people thought that that was too inappropriate for children but it did win an honorary award. Don't remember Charlotte's Web being wildly inappropriate as a child. <laughs> yeah, no, it's kind of crazy because I love that book. <laughs> Seems like a pretty successful program overall. Their, their goal was to promote children's literature and the genre has really exploded over the last 100 years. The question then is how does a book baby book win an award? So for the Newberry Medal, you can find some, the submissions guidelines at ala.org, but overall it depends on what award we're talking about. Importantly, most groups are only interested in books from the previous year. Right. Authors, they they don't want to have old stories there. They want the new stuff. So, Sam, if uh, someone from Book Baby uh, wanted to get an award pendant on their cover, do you have any idea how they go about that? I do. Uh, We have a process for that. It's called a post-distribution file update. Uh, Some of our authors may be familiar with that. That's when they want to change their, their book files after they've already approved it and after it's been published. We really recommend that only for certain changes. Adding the, the metal to your cover would certainly be on there. 
That's one of the reasons why you might want to do a post-distribution file update. And our clients can get that started by emailing support at bookbaby.com. Uh, and you can also add that info in your metadata, of course. You can uh, put that right in your description so that anybody just reading about your book is going to know right away uh, your qualifications. So then uh, the big question is how to promote that. <laughs> I think a great way to promote that would be to run an ad, definitely letting us know that information so we can let the world know. Speaking of some of the great books that we have, segue into my interview with Candice Rouser. Last week, I had the pleasure to sit down with Dr. Rouser. Uh, she's a professor at the City University of New York. She published a lecture book with us. Jess, have you ever heard of a lecture book? No, as someone who loves academia, this is the first time I'm hearing of a lecture book. <laughs> so her book lays out the key points that she would cover in lectures and can be used as a supplementary text for her classes. Uh, this is her first book baby title, and it's titled Engaged Citizen, A Look Into Congress. And she told me about how she came to write this book. It was actually the suggestion of a colleague in 2020 in the middle of the pandemic. And they asked me, why don't you publish some of your lectures? And I said, oh, people do that? <laughs> and they said, yeah. So I talked with them again to get more clarity. And then I went and uh, just pulled lectures, you know, from various courses and, you know, I, you know, I put them all together and I thought about, you know, how would I, how would I package it and introduce it? And then, you know, I wrote the introduction, everything, and then I, you know, got my quote and everything and submitted it on a book baby. So this was for high school or college level courses? College level courses. Okay. Uh, so how did you end up publishing with book baby? Dave first presented it to me like through Amazon because there's this partnership for whichever, uh, you know, I'm not sure of the official commercial terms or whatever, but um, there's a collaboration between Book Baby and Amazon. So I had initially searched through Amazon and Book Baby was one of the um, publishing companies that came up. And so I, you know, clicked on the link and I read through the information and the material that was um, provided and accessible. And then I decided to work with Bookbaby. Sounds like good work by our SEO marketing team. Uh, so I noticed that you have Bookshop <laughs> only uh, for your POD. But what made you decide on that distribution option? Because of the information that Bookbaby is for me is so wonderful in making sure that their authors know. It's like, oh, hey, you know, if you have the bookshop only, you know, the author keeps more of, of the money from the sales, et cetera, you know, even though you have the retail partners, but it's more beneficial um, to the author, you know, for whatever gains they're going to, to have through the process to work with the bookshop directly or primarily. And how are you, uh, how are you, promoting? like, who, who would you say is your target audience for this? Is it, it people in your courses? Everybody. <laughs> well, <laughs> because of my, you know, I've been, I've had a social media presence on various platforms, but like the totality is going into 13 years now. And so I kind of got like a little taste of what's happening through um, various platforms. And I see like such a huge gap in basic civics in the country. So it's pretty much anyone who has basic reading comprehension from your fifth grader to your 85-year-old grandmother if they just want a refresher, but definitely college students. That's also my other main 
main. Got it. I was curious about the following uh, because Bookshop, I think, as a platform works best with people who already have a a legitimate following on social media and can just direct people right there versus Amazon or another Barnes and Noble where it's it's more browsing and people are going to maybe come across it. With Bookshop, it's more, I think, best for people who already have that following and know how to get people there. Yes. So, I mean, I've shared the links on my platforms as well as, um, you know, the, the, the link in bio link tree. So mm-hmm. I relied heavily on that and I just put the link directly. Yes. So this might sound dumb, but what is link tree? I keep hearing that more and more. And I think oh. some of my uh, listeners <laughs> might be interested to hear about it, how do you get link tree? <laughs> it was new to me. I've seen various people. I think it was about a year ago. Uh, early 2021, where I realized, oh, what is this thing? I think it's, it's uh, what, you know, forgive me, I'm trying to like think succinctly how to say it, but it's basically like a mini website um, where you can put all the links to your your social media presence, all the stuff you've done, um, your YouTube, your LinkedIn, um, your websites, you can put them all, they all converge in this one location. And you can just put that on all of your platforms. You can email it to people. You can text it to people if you want to go old school. Um, And they can access everything you've done in every place you are. (laughs) Got So you link directly from Linktree to Bookshop as well? Is that on there? Yes. Awesome. Uh, Cool. So... I'm curious. uh, I see you also have TikTok. (laughs) So... (laughs) Uh, I'm yeah. surprised to learn that there's a, a big uh, you know, political book, uh, lecture book presence on TikTok. <laughs> yeah. So what, what kind of work are you doing there on TikTok? What sort of videos I'm do you make? Just, I'm, just, I'm just trying to market the book, you know. Um, still learning I've that done, one as well. Yeah, I'm still <laughs> learning that. And, uh, you know, they just uh, actually gave users the capacity to record three minute videos. It was just usually the 15, 15 second, 30 second, one minute. And so what I've just, you know, sometimes I'll do a quick video, not often, but um, or I'll just go and get grab screenshots of, you know, the table of contents, the cover of the book. I also have a podcast. And so I just put those things together and just do a quick video. And then I share the link everywhere. So half of your book, uh, it starts with laying out the basics of how Congress works, kind of the factual information. The second half kind of dives into what's been going on, what what Congress has been doing. I really appreciate how you laid it out so simply. Uh, But what do you think is the the biggest misconception out there? Boy, oh boy, how long do we have? No. (laughs) (laughs) Being that we are in what what is uh, traditionally called a midterm election year <laughs> um the biggest thing is um the the presidency is responsible for much more than it really is like by the general american public um some of the responsibilities that are actually attributed to congress in the constitution a lot of americans think that it is the responsibility of the president and it's not <laughs> Um, And so they get frustrated and they're not fully equipped with just the basic info when they go to the ballot box. And then we have to suffer the consequences of, you know, not necessarily picking the best public managers. And so when things don't go the way that people would desire, like they're just ordinary everyday material lives don't improve, 
then they're mad at the president, you know, one way or the other. And they don't realize there's this whole group of like a few hundred people <laughs> who are the policy makers and the president is the one who carries out the policy. So I thought it was See. necessary to break that down, to bring that, you know, to take that to take that section of my branches of American government lecture from my American government and politics course that I taught at the community college level and just expand it and then, you know, uh, take a look at what Congress is doing and put it together for people to be able to digest. No, I think we're talking to you at the right time then. We have midterms this year and uh, I think the first primary days are next month. Uh, at this moment, though, I know a lot of the work, uh, especially in my home state of Pennsylvania, is being held up by the redistricting process. So can we get into that? You know, what is that? Where does it stand? I know that we just had the uh, 2020 census, right? So every 10 years, there's just this data collection on who's in the country. And uh, this is fundamental because there, there is an allocation of resources connected to that, as well as needing to know where the people are so that we can have proper representation. And so the districts are also based on the census and where the, the people in the country are. Um, and that redistricting is controlled at the state level. Um, I do know that we had a ballot measure here in New York City, New York State, um, that had to do with uh, how, we, how that uh, commission that deals with it at the state level um, is structured, um, adding two or three more people, et cetera. So yes, that's where we are. We, um, we have some states that <laughs> are not necessarily doing the responsible and proper um, thing regarding the redistricting, but um, I just see various uh, news reports about you know uh, one political philosophy gaining seats gaining more seats or losing more seats in this state versus another state, et cetera. So that would be gerrymandering you're referring to as the improper things? <laughs> the improper, yes. <laughs> from from uh, the former governor in the 19th century, I believe it's Massachusetts governor. <laughs> Eldridge Jerry, I believe that's what his name was. The last so, name, G-E-R-R-Y, and Jerry Bender, <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that was based on a person's name. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. There was a cartoon drawn at the time. Um, it was, it was, there was a, a district in Massachusetts that um, he had a hand in redrawing. And there was an artist who was kind of like making fun of it, but also um, expressing disgruntlement about it. And um, the way the, the drawing looked, it looked like a salamander. And so they <laughs> recommended that they switch it to gerrymander. And that's, how we got the term. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that. That's a, that's a great little nugget. <laughs> um, so you mentioned your book, the Permanent Apportionment Act, uh, which sets the size of Congress at 435 members. It's been a while uh, since that passed. That was at the beginning of the 20th century. So what is it about that number? Why, why did Congress stop growing in size while the nation itself continued to grow? I I honestly don't know. There wasn't, you know, I didn't uh, dive deep into that. Um, I just, I wanted to present that fact to, for, for any reader um, to know uh, the point at which it was set. Um, I am of the opinion and, and I can't, uh, let's see, I can't uh, think of a way for the, the, the most appropriate way to do it, but I'm of the opinion that 
as the population grow, the number of representatives should grow. Just as we have other democracies, um, you know, constitutional monarchy slash democracy is a little bit weird with the UK, <laughs> um, France and Germany. Um, these countries have, uh, in the case of France and the UK, they have approximately, it's more than 65 million people. And Germany has 80 million people, but they have national legislatures, uh, you know, the two, the bicameral, they have uh, five and 600 representatives <laughs> in each one. And I'm like, wait a minute, we got 335 million people. Why do we only, why are we only fixed at 435 in our House of Representatives? Um, <clears throat> I've seen in uh, various texts authored by political scientists because uh, I'm officially trained as a historian, um, but I've taught politics. Um, but they, there's a range of, in, in the, the first, the early days of the country, uh, each representative represented 30 to 40,000 uh, residents. Today, it's more, more than 700,000. Oh, wow. And <laughs> if, yeah, so if we kept that figure or we, if we try to uh, reach a, a, a medium, you know, there, we should have more representatives in the house, you know. Sounds like it should be like um, two thousand people or so. Right, because I mean, when I when you think about the load and the response, like how can they effectively respond to three quarters of a million people in their district? You know, in various cases, you know. But yeah, yeah. So you, you oh, write okay. one line that, that caught my attention in the book that uh, you wrote that the Speaker of the House's power reached its peak in the earliest 20th century. Uh, from my understanding, uh, part of Congress's issue with being able to act easily uh, and efficiently right now uh, is that the power has really been consolidated in the hands of leadership. Uh, so I guess my question is, you know, who is Joseph Cannon? Uh, what power did he have that Nancy Pelosi lacks now? Well, he he had he was simultaneously um, the speaker of the house and I believe the chair of the steering committee, which is the one that gives like uh, the speaker does give the assignments, but it was uh, combining two roles, which they've now decided to <laughs> separate. So I believe the speaker still has a role in the committee assignment, but it's also the primary responsibility of the the chair of the, the steering committee them, themselves. Um, he was. Um, a representative from the 19th into the 20th century. And um, I guess at the time they just thought he did a bit too much. <laughs> he did a bit too much. Where in times like we're in now with the pandemic, I think some people probably would want the speaker to have that same um, degree of power um, to be able to co uh, correct course right now, with um, especially with the pandemic response, even though we do have a, a substantial improvement from two years ago, but yes. And not because of you know, specifically who that person is in that role, uh, but just due to the nature of the House, they, they have to be reelected by a much smaller group every two years. So right. you think that that would make Congress more responsive. Right, right. So that's a, a little bit about why the House is broken. Uh, but what about the Senate? Uh, there's a lot of debate right now about the filibuster. How does that all work? Um, so. <laughs> the filibuster itself or the debate regarding the filibuster or both? Uh, well, yeah, let's, let's define the filibuster first. So, so what is that? Why, why does it exist? Filibuster is pretty much a, a mechanism or a practice in the Senate where 
for one reason or another, good reason or bad reason, senators can delay the passage of a bill. Um, it is uh, technically talking a bill to death to, you know, delay the process. And so it was actually interesting, we just discussed this, but it was uh, referenced by um, Senator uh, William McClay from Pennsylvania, I believe, in 1789, that he wrote it in his diary and he said, pretty much the practice of the Virginia senators to talk away the time so that we can't get the bill passed. And then there's various changes throughout you know, the course of the history of the country where by the early 20th century, they developed this other mechanism to end the debate, which is the culture. And they've made revisions to that whole process as well. The most recent debate is <laughs> revising the culture again from a threshold of, it went from 67 senators in the early 20th century to 60 senators um, to end debate and, you know, move forward. Um, Shouldn't it be 51 since that's half? Well, so, so now in the 2010s, under the Senate majority leadership of the late Senator Harry Reid, the cloture requirement, I'm sorry, the threshold for votes was changed from 60 to 51, a simple majority for nominations. It okay. is still 60 for legislation. So right now the issue and the discussion and the debate is surrounding whether we're going to change the threshold to just a simple majority vote for legislation as well. I was always taught majority rules and that's how it works. Yeah, and you kind of I assume thought. that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm curious on how, uh, how does all of this relate back to the lives of our authors? Uh, you know, what laws maybe could you, could you see Congress passing that would help shape the publishing industry? I mean, we, we already have to go through pretty much Congress for our copyright and patents and trademarks, right? That's in the Constitution. Most likely, the, the the more the most visible way I can see it is just support the protection of independent authors and in, in their intellectual property, if we want to describe it as such. There there are some things that Congress is is doing currently. Like I did find some information: um, Library of Congress collections policy statements, um, independently published and self published textual materials, and so there's some information where um, Congress is, has already moved towards um, supporting independent publishing, which was something done in the 19th century. But now that we have more of a regular everyday usage of the internet and various platforms, which is democratized expression pretty much of all sorts, even bad, there is more of a move for Congress to protect those authors. I see, I see something in reference to like a control number or something like that, that authors can register and apply for, et cetera. So I think on that topic of content uh, kind of neutrality, uh, it's really interesting how, you know, that's, you know, in the First Amendment, the Constitution lays out that, you know, exactly the freedom of expression uh, and what Congress cannot do. And, but then, you know, within a few years, they passed the Alien and Sedition Acts and say, well, actually, no, you can't write, print, publish, uh, have the notes here, any false, scandalous or malicious writing against the government. Uh, so just thought that was really interesting that, you know, they laid out the specific amendment and then immediately said, uh, you know, but some things. I guess they saw the need to um, establish parameters, you know, because if you don't, <laughs> on, you know, on either side, either extreme people will go there. So, you know, there, there needs to be some type of reasonable limitation, right? You know, you have freedom of speech, but it can't harm. That right. That's uh, harm. I'm yeah. pretty sure that's where the, uh, the 
the phrase, uh, you know, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater originated. Yes, it cannot harm. So, I mean, even to this day in the 21st century, um, <laughs> there are ordinary everyday Americans who don't understand that. Like, oh, it's freedom of speech, freedom of speech. No, but that freedom of speech has a limitation where it can pose a threat or, or harm to the safety and lives of others. <laughs> You well, know, I guess that's so. why you're trying to engage them further. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, so again, the, the book is titled Engaged Citizen. Uh, what would you say to someone who reads your book and wants to get engaged in it and, you know, start being involved? Um, I mean, they can, um, let's, wow. <laughs> so we'll register to vote. <laughs> right, register one. to vote. <laughs> yeah, register to vote. Um, you know, if it's about a cost thing, hey, take a look at your public, your local public library, do a search of their database, go grab and borrow a book. If you, you know, if there's something you come across, you go look it up and you want to dive deeper, you know, go grab that book, um, you know, get online, um, search for any local civic organizations in your area, you know, go to your board of elections if you have any kind of questions. See if you can join any uh, politically focused responsibly, politically focused groups on social media. Um, that's what I can think of right now at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Specifically, we're here in Black History Month, and as a professor of African American history, uh, what would you like to see as legislative priorities for this Congress? I mean, I think that uh, we're kind of I don't know if I want to say the first phase of this, administ this executive administration with um, trying to deal with the pandemic. I think we're doing as well as we can, given. But the next critical thing would be voting rights, making sure, you know, we're updating, I believe it's the Section 5 of the Voting, voting Rights Act of 19, uh, 1965, as well as uh, H.R. 1 and H.R. 4 having to do the for the for the people act and in, in, in voting rights is they've, they've renamed some of these bills honestly um i've taken the look for the updates just making sure that the very foundation of a democratic society is secured and unfortunately according to the record of this country one of the critical parts of this population that's been targeted with that right to vote that right to choose who governs you who makes decisions regarding your life is constantly interfered with and that is the African-American community within the overall American family. So that's the thing I want to see done for us, to see done for now. And I know we also have a Supreme Court vacancy coming up with the retirement of Justice Breyer, I believe it is. And President Biden had already made a commitment to fulfill, to fill that seat with particularly an African-American woman jurist, you know, legal professional. So I'd like to see that happen as well. First in Supreme Court history, I believe. Yes. I mean, if I had it, well, there are people talking about it and I have to take a, a deeper dive into that because when you do American government and politics, this is like, you know, a survey. There are courses that center on the three branches alone. So, you know, clearly there's a deeper dive into the three branches of government. I believe that the court at this time in our history and, and given all the things that have happened, especially in the last five to six years, the court should be expanded. When it first started, it included six justices, one, uh, one chief and five associates. I think that the court should reflect what this country is. I, I want to see 
someone on that court in all the facets and varieties that is America. So the court's going to be your second book? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, you know what? I'll leave that to the official legal people. I I think that I want to focus on Congress because, you know, we have plenty of people that are writing about the presidency. I just ordered a book on Bill Clinton's presidency because I was I, I became uh, more curious. Um, I mean, I was I was a kid <laughs> at the time, and uh, now that I'm older and I have like a better grasp, I want to take a, a closer look at his presidency to get a a better understanding of the various dynamics at play. And so there are plenty of people writing on the presidency, and I'll just leave it to the jurists to write on the court because they'll they have a perspective that I don't think I'm not sure that I can provide like that. I know my lane. (laughs) (laughs) And that was Dr. Candice Rouser, professor and book baby author. Jasmine, before we head out of here, what are you reading? Right now, it is All About Love by the famous Bell Hooks, uh, who actually passed away recently, but an amazing, phenomenal writer. Perfect for Valentine's Day, too. Yeah, I'm reading one of our colleagues' books, but I just noticed actually that she only has her initials on it, so I should probably keep that to myself. (laughs) Gotta respect the pseudonym. Yeah, good point. <laughs> All right. Well, shout out then instead to Ronnie Williams, his book baby titled Markham Street. He was able to get that uh, in Walmart. Uh, they placed a bulk order and it's going to be carrying some of their stores. It's really awesome, exciting. Uh, his book's about his brother's murder. So pretty intense. Sounds like a podcast in the works. Uh, we'll see. Uh, before we go, huge thank you to our guest today, Candace Rouser. You can find more information about her at Linktree. Uh, that is L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Dr. Browser. Her book, Engaged Citizen, is available on the Book Baby Bookshop now, along with thousands of other independently published books. That's store.bookbaby.com. If you're interested in publishing with Book Baby, our reps want to hear from you. 877-961-6878 or info at bookbaby.com. Until next time, this has been the Book Baby Spotlight.